You're listening to a DM podcast. It's actually quite funny. Myself and, a, and another sports broadcaster, Adam Papalier, actually hosted one of the first ever podcasts in Australia <laughs> back in 2006. So we were post-grad uni and we, you know, podcasting was this brand new fandangle thing <laughs> and um, we used the equipment at the university and we would go out to waffle games and we'd like call into the little Morants it was called at the time. I think they're probably still around and we'd record that and then we'd take it back and we'd use that audio clip up the highlights and then we'd host a show together and, and that would go out to the uni compound but we'd also put it up online and we'd get, you know, a waffle guest to either come into the studio or call in. So one of our first guests was Shane Wowoden, who, you know, Brownlow medalist, and we were pretty chuffed with us. <laughs> Welcome to Behind the Podcast. I'm Anthony, and with me as always is Jules. Today we're speaking with the punorific Narrowly Meadows of the insightful and heartwarming Ordinarily Speaking, which won the Best Sporting Podcast at the 2020 Australian Podcast Awards. As Australians, we tend to place our sports players on a pedestal and sometimes forget they are actually people, just like you and me, but more athletic. They come from a wide variety of backgrounds and overcame their own challenges to get where they are today. Narrowly, tell us about your podcast. Ordinarily Speaking is a podcast that celebrates resilience in sport. It's about telling the human stories of the stars that we basically have come to know and love from afar. So my whole motivation was wanting to make sports people more relatable because um, working in uh, as a sports broadcaster and a journalist for 16, more than 16 years now, I just found that there's a lot of um, focus on scandal and negativity and not as much on celebrating resilience. Um, and I just thought that there could be a little bit more on that. And so it was a great opportunity to have a little independent project where it is about humanizing athletes. And then a, another step on is hopefully using those stories as a way to help other people with their own issues. Um, you know, just because you're a, a big name sports star doesn't mean you are any less human and my approach as a journo was always um you know human first journo second human first sports person second um and I think when you sort of allow people to have a you know a really open quiet space where they're free of judgment um it, you know it you can get some pretty powerful stuff and and a lot of the guys that have come on have been motivated by wanting to help other people wanting to use their stories to help other people get through their own stuff so when did uh this journey into journalism start for you did you did the love of sport come first or journalism or was it a bit of a bit of column a, a bit of column b yeah, I um, so I always say that I, I wanted to play basketball for Australia, um, but I wasn't um, tall enough, quick enough, couldn't jump high enough, and not particularly talented enough either. So um, my basketball career peaked. Stocks and I very similar boat. <laughs> we both wanted to play for the NBA. That that makes three of us absolutely. <laughs> my uh, career peaked at uh, at fourteen when I was uh, I played uh, country cup. Um, state country cup and I broke my collarbone twice and that was pretty much the end of my um, my basketball career on any sort of moderately competitive level Um, and yeah I was 14 and I said to mom I want to be a sports broadcaster I want to be doing the interviews um, you know on, on the boundary and who knows if if I was 
a woman coming through now, maybe I would have had um, dreams of calling as well, and and not just com- like not just uh, interviews and hostings, but um, yeah, that was sort of my my goal. And so, Mum and I sat down and we we worked it out. Um, you know, the the best university to go to to do a journalism course, and then I basically just geared everything towards sport. It wasn't an actual sports journalism course but I just made sure everything was was sort of geared towards sport and I got discouraged a lot from doing that um particularly as a woman but I just went no why don't I don't want to be a general news journal I want to be a sports broadcaster so just sort of stayed the course and and kept persevering really what sort of discouragement did you run into was it um a woman trying to become a journalist or yeah becoming a sports journalist specifically I mean it was it was, you know, there's only a handful of jobs and, um, you know, and there's not a lot of, you know, it's particularly hard industry for women to break into as well. And, you know, when we're, we're talking um, 18 years ago now, so um, things have obviously changed a lot since then. But, it, yeah, it still wasn't, it still wasn't straightforward, that's for sure. Um, but like I said, I, I didn't want to be... A, a general news journalist that wasn't what I was interested in so that you know doing a journalism degree was the way that I saw the only way that I could get to being a sports broadcaster because I wasn't going to be an elite athlete so I couldn't go down that path um yeah so this that was my way of of getting there when you finished uh journalism studying it how do you then get transfer that into becoming a sports journalist and how do you make those connections initially yeah, so I um, did a lot of work experience while I was at uni and I sort of treated my, my university um, degree and postgrad degree as, as real-life opportunities, I guess, to, to meet as many people and make as many, many contacts as possible because I came from a country town, so I, I didn't have contacts through that avenue. Um, so they, you know, it all came from doing as much work experience as possible and taking those opportunities when they arose and really trying to push as hard as possible in those in those moments um and I ended up getting work experience at Channel 7 in Perth and then um that turned into a weekend job and it sort of snowballed from there so I was really lucky that I got a job at a at a main news network um as a sports journo straight out of uni um postgrad which was amazing because you know a lot of people had to go back to the country and I was pretty keen not to do that because I'd spent Mm. my first 17 years of my life in the country so um yeah that's that's sort of how it went from there oh you did some study as an exchange student at the University of Tennessee is that correct yeah so I did six months um in between so I finished my degree there so just before postgrad um, yeah, spent six months at Tennessee, which was great fun. And once again, sort of, um, really geared it towards that sports side of things, really wanted to go to a, um, a football college town. Um, and it was great fun that the football stadium housed a hundred thousand people. Um, the basketball stadium was 25,000. So, um, yeah, it was great fun. And once again, I did an internship with a local TV station and, you know, they thought it was pretty cool having an Aussie chick come in who loved her sport. So yeah. um, they sort of let me do whatever I wanted in the, at the football games and stuff like that and stand on the sidelines, which was pretty cool. So that was an awesome experience. Yeah. Well, was there much difference in the way that the US universities approached media and sport? Yeah, definitely. Um, doing an internship with a guy over there at the time. Um, but also... Um, I would definitely 
probably because I didn't have the experience in Australian television when I went over there. Whereas now, so for example, going over to the Super Bowl last year, um, that was a probably a, a more stark difference of really noticing how much more Americans um, make it live. I think Australia is much more polished in the sense that we don't like to you know, show that there are people behind the scenes and, you know, it is a very slick on-air performance, very clean. Whereas in the States, you know, you'll have hosts who, you know, will put their, their hand to their ear and go, hang, hang on, I'm, I'm just getting something through from the producer. And, uh, yeah, this is coming through right now, right now. It's red hot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's red hot, you know, that kind of thing. And it, it kind of adds to the drama. It may not be as polished, but it, it has that live feel and – much more of a sort of personality to it. I think that's a lot stronger in the States than than what it is in Australia, for sure. When you started in, in Perth, presumably you were covering AFL. Was that the kind of primary one there? Yeah, a lot of AFL. I mean, there's a... It, Perth is a great sporting town because, you, you know, you've got the, the Perth Wildcats in the NBL and the Perth Glory, the Western Force, um, you know, so it really was, you had you had pretty much all codes except for the NRL. So um, it was a it was a great place to, to start um, and, you know, two major footy teams as well, as you say. So, and we, also a lot of, you know, international cricket, which I always loved um, covering the test whenever it came to Perth. So it was a pretty good city, really, um, a lot of opportunity for those sorts of things. But, yeah, a massive focus on footy. Well, you seem to have had an amazing career to date. I'm sure huge things in front of you as well. It's interesting that your career seems to have mirrored the sort of rise of women's sport as well in Australia. And you've been at the forefront of that, really. Yeah, it's been really fun to watch. Like, uh, you know, the AFLW, when that came about, that was that was huge. Um I, it, it was very emotional for me um, seeing that happen as, as somebody who, you know, I watched my footy, my brother play footy and I, I was never allowed to, you know. Um, I played soccer with all the boys, but that was about it. But certainly last year covering the um, Women's Cricket World Cup and the final at the MCG and there's 86,000 people there and, you know, interviewing um, – Elisa Healy after the game and, and we're both just sort of looking up in the crowd and seeing 86,000 people and we both got quite emotional. We'd known each other for many years and, um, you know, and just sort of looking at the crowd and looking at each other and going like, we never thought we'd see the day. Um, and that was really cool. That was really special. So now um, I look at my niece who's who's just turned nine a couple of weeks ago and she plays footy, um, you know, she loves the Fremantle Dockers because, you know, because I've sort of got her on board and taken her away from West Coast to the rest of the family. And um, she, yeah, she plays footy and her, her little brothers now love footy because their cool big sister does. It's completely flipped, you know, immediately in one generation. And, um, yeah, it, it's it's really special to, to watch it all unfold and, and – I'm a little bit in awe and, and jealous of, of the opportunities that are in front of her, but I'm also so grateful that the world has changed um, because it needed to and it, and it still needs to. There's still such a long way to go, but um, it's definitely a lot better than, you know, than the 30 years ago when I was, um, you know, a, a little tucker coming through. Yeah, these things, are they're so often it's just extraordinary until it happens like something like that, the final that you mentioned, and then all of a sudden it's just there and it's, it's normal and you can't almost imagine what it was like before. But as you said, I mean, there's a long way still to go with those sorts of things, but I think we're on the right track. Especially in the pandemic because it was literally like 
four days before the pandemic it shut everything down. So it really was like a complete nutter world before. Yeah, hopefully people didn't think that was the reason. It was a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So you were getting these great relationships along the way and, and meeting all these people. I mean, how do you kind of maintain those relationships with players and, and make sure that, you know, you're able to give them a call when they come into town or just any time something happens and you, and you build that trust with them? I, I mean, I was always a bit rubbish at the hard news of journalism. I, you know, I'd always sat really uncomfortably with me. I don't know. I, I'm just not that great at, at breaking news. I think I'm more of a storyteller and, um, you know, and, and, able to say the right things in the moment so you know occasionally there's stories that I've had to cover that is hard news but it's not you know somebody has to do it kind of thing um you know whether it's a death of a sports person or things like that and you don't want to be the person doing that clearly especially when you know that person but also you want whoever is doing it to do it with respect and and accuracy and so I would rather you know to have myself trust myself to do that um, and, and get it right, I guess, at least. Um, but in terms of having relationships with sports people, like I say, treating them like a human being first um, and, you know, really listening and, and trying not to stitch people up, I guess. And my biggest thing with sport is I totally understand this, you know, wanting to hold people accountable and that fans want answers for performances or culture or whatever it is. But I just do think that we all need to take a step back sometimes and remember that we're, we are holding them accountable. We're, we're holding them accountable for sport. They're not politicians. They're yeah. not criminals. They are still sports people. It is still sport. And whilst we care so damn much about our footy team or our basketball team or our netball team or whatever it is, let's just maintain that perspective of they are human beings and, you know, holding them to account needs to be relative to what their job actually is. Absolutely. And I think one of the major takeaways I got from listening to your podcast is that no one holds themselves more accountable than the athlete themselves either. So that really was a something that I thought went, oh, wait, I'm not going to ever push as hard on, at any of these athletes because they're, they're devastated when they do something wrong. It's such an interesting thing for you to observe. Yeah, you, you're spot on. I mean, when you are somebody that is ambitious, you, you are going to hold yourself to such a higher, you know, like accountability than than anyone else around you whether that's in sport or science or whatever you know if you're an ambitious person you're going to be hard on yourself um you know like watching things like the michael jordan documentary you, you just see how that's how greats become great because they're so damn hard on themselves and they expect so much from themselves and from those around them um so, yeah, you're spot on. People in this podcast are really honest about – I constantly, you know, hear that I, I feel like I let my family down. I feel like I let my country down. And I'm like – every time an athlete says it to me, I'm like, what a weight to carry around, man, yeah. feeling like you let your country down. When did a podcast first start to come on your radar? You talked about, you know, being more of a storyteller and not necessarily wanting to kind of break that news. So it's, it's the perfect format for that. Do you remember when you first started hearing about them and, and when, you, when you thought, oh, I might be able to use this and, and give you know, this whole sports journalism thing a bit of a different take? It's actually quite funny. Myself and, a, and another sports broadcaster, Adam Papalier, actually hosted one of the first ever podcasts in Australia <laughs> back in 2006. 
So we were post-grad uni and we, you know, podcasting was this brand new fandangle thing <laughs> and um, we used the equipment at the university and we would go out to waffle games and we'd like call into the little Morants it was called at the time. I think they're probably still around and we'd record that and then we'd take it back and we'd use that audio clip up the highlights and then we'd host a show together and, and that would go out to the uni compound but we'd also put it up online and we'd get, you know, a waffle guest to either come into the studio or call in. So one of our first guests was Shane Woden, who, you know, Brownlow medalist, and we were pretty chuffed with us. What about <laughs> he guests? just come back wow. to East Fremantle. Exactly. <laughs> um, he just come back to East Fremantle and I sort of, I was doing uh, some work experience at 6PR radio station and he was there. And um, it, the actual, the real funny thing about that is whilst I was in the States um, at the end of 2005, he got delisted and... You know, when you're overseas and particularly pre-social, like heavy social media, you, mm. you tend to miss a few things and you don't know you've missed them until months later somebody refers to it and you're like, what are you, what are you talking about? You get the letter from home via the carrier pigeon. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's how old I am. I was going to uni in the penny farthing. Um, so I, I, went to, I went to this, uh, yeah, 6PR, the radio station, and Shane Woden was in the lift and I was like, why is he not, you know, playing footy like what has happened here and I worked out um that he you know he'd been delisted and was going to be playing with East Fremantle and um so I kind of just hit him up and went hey so uh we've got this podcast I'm at our uni do you reckon you would come on and we called the podcast the Monday Waffle um and the brilliant the brilliant thing about it is um, 16 years on now it's uh it's still running so it's now part of the course um, and the uni students do the do the Monday waffle if they want to be sports broadcasters. So we also think it's potentially the longest running podcast in Australia. So all right, mind, mind blown, quite- mind blown. You are the godmother of Australian <laughs> podcasting. I love it. Um, but yeah, anyway, so that was kind of my first um, you know entry into into podcasting with Paps and I. And, uh, and my first one, you know, as an actual broadcaster professionally was, was this one, ordinarily speaking. And, and that came about um, at the end of what, – what year are we in? 2021. So it was the end of 2019. Um, I sort of knew that I wanted to tell these sort of stories and I thought this is probably the best way of, of going about it. And I sought out the advice of Will Anderson. I'd been on his podcast, Willosophy. So I, I asked his advice and, uh, and Mark Howard. Howie Games. Yeah, Howie Games. And, uh, and both of them sort of went, yeah, just, just go for it. Just do it. Um, so they were really uh, important in, in, in giving me the advice of the equipment. And, you know, because it can be quite overwhelming um, when you're on your own and, you uh, yeah, and sort of figuring out whether I can do it by myself or whether I need other people and whether you can, you know, do it without, um, you know, spending too much money and all of yeah. those sort of things. So, yeah. We'll go into the process and the production. I just wanted to get a bit of clarification on the name. I mean, you know, the Monday Waffle is a great name. You clearly have a talent for this, ordinarily speaking as well. Where did this one come from? <laughs> so it's a lightning bolt of inspiration. Perhaps and I still argue about who came up with it. So the name is, um, it, it's got a couple of meanings to it. So um, 
obviously, you know, ordinarily speaking is um, is a phrase and it's quite cool because I use it to, to start every episode. So the guest will say, ordinarily speaking, blah, 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 because these are generally. That's very cool. Thank you. These are generally stories that people either don't know or certainly don't know to the extent of the depth that they're about to be sharing them. Um, so, yeah, that, it's sort of used in that way. But but the the trigger for the name was my my best mate, who's basically like my sister. Her mum, growing up, would call me X for extraordinarily. Uh-huh. Um, and I always thought that was one of the more clever nicknames somebody had given me and, um, and flattering as well. Were you saying just there's no need to shorten the name. Go with the whole thing, please, everyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she, um, she had a really long battle with, uh, with breast cancer and she, you know, she had faced a lot of resilience in her life and um, she died quite a few years ago now. And, and so it's kind of got this double meaning of, um, you know, it is a, a practically, you know, good pun, but also it's sort of paying um, homage to my best mate and the resilience that she's sort of overcome because, yeah, that's that's where the sort of nickname originally came from. That's a great story. Thanks. Just dive into your process. It seems that the safe space you're able to create with your guests is the key to this podcast, from my perspective at least. How do you do it? I mean, you seem to have these incredible relationships with the guests. Do you have it in mind before you approach them? Are you sitting down workshopping? Just want to know the whole process, I guess, of selecting who you're going to interview and then how you actually how you actually put it to them, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of them are just people that I've built up relationships with over, over a 16-year career. So, a lot of them I know the stories and I have known the stories, but they weren't necessarily public or fully public. Um, some of the time I've known a bit of the story and it's only when you actually ask somebody what's the full story that they're, you know, that they're willing to, to tell it to you. Um, as far as creating a safe space, I think they trust me generally, that that trust is already there. And if it's not somebody I already know, then they've, um, the good thing is they've seen enough of my work over the years that they, they know I've never burnt anyone um, and that there is examples there. So I think, you know, that, that level of trust and understanding is, is there to begin with. Um, and then, I'm the only one that, that touches it. So I record it, I edit it, I release it. So I can actually say to them, I, I'm it. There's no boss here that's saying you have to ask this or you have to put this in or you, you know, um, anything like that. So if they, you know, suddenly decide that they desperately don't want something in there, then I'm, you know, I don't mind taking it out. I'm, I haven't really had that happen. But, and the other thing is I always, always with all of my interviews, whether it's television or, or broad or radio or podcast, I always say to the person I'm interviewing to begin with, this is your story. It's not mine. If I ask you something you, you don't want to answer, just tell me you don't want to answer it. I don't want you to sit there and feel uncomfortable and feel forced into it. That's not what this is about. I've never had somebody to this day actually say, I don't want to answer that. But I find that if you give them that knowledge and that comfort um, and that level of safety, they they immediately sort of go, okay, this person is not going to burn me. Um so I think those are those are really important things, and and to be quite frank, be real. I'm really really honest with them. I say to them, this requires a lot of vulnerability. This requires a lot of honesty. Um, and if you 
don't want to do that, it's probably not going to work. And look, there are some people that get, you know, scared off by that and go, yeah, look, I'm not ready or I don't want to open myself up to that. And that's so fine. I'm not forcing anyone into into doing this. It's such a personal thing to choose to do, to share your, you know, heartbreak, your resilience with the world. Um, so I, I never take that for granted that they've trusted me with that. So will you talk specifically about the kind of, uh, I don't better way to phrase it, but like the things that you know before the interview. So, you know, listening to uh, Natalie Medhurst, for instance, and just talking about, you know, eating disorders and things like that, you know, they're heavy topics. And maybe mm-hmm. you'd heard about that, you know, from someone or other, but not directly. Do you kind of bring that up at first and say, oh, I wouldn't mind touching on, on this kind of topic? Absolutely. And it's different with different people. Some people don't want to know your questions and they're, they're sort of like, no, nah, ask me what you want, Nez, I'm happy. Um, like Nathan Lyon, for example, was like that. I was like, come on, mate, there must be some stuff that you don't want to talk about. And he's like, no, 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 all good. And I think he probably knew that I knew where the line was anyway. And um, yeah. and I wasn't, I wasn't going to go places that I didn't think were, you know, worth sharing with the world or, or, or none of the world's business. Um, and yeah, but with somebody like Nat, for example, who I had never met before, so um, I had had somebody suggest her to me and say, look, she may be open to sharing this. Um, she hasn't before to the extent. Um, and then I, with when it's that sort of situation, I contact the person and say, hey, I, I think, you know, you, you might have a story that's of interest. Once again, I'm really honest. And then I sort of almost pre-interview them when I, when I don't know them because um, I find that they feel more comfortable. I'm more aware of their story because it's not stuff that you can just Google, you know. And also you need to be really aware of the impact on families and things like that. So there's some people that I, I say to them, you know, go and talk to your family about it. Make sure that they're okay with you sharing all of this stuff. Um, you know, when it involves one of a family members. So uh, once again, I'm just really honest about it. Um, and I mm. understand that the honesty will scare some people off and it does. And that's okay. I, I'm not forcing anyone into doing anything they don't want to do. I love that approach. Are you going to their house? Or are you going to a safe place for them to record? Or are you getting them to come to you? Is there anything you're doing as far as the location goes? Yeah, I basically leave it up to them. So I've got really, you know, just a little kit. I've just got the little Zoom. Um, so it's super portable. So I can take it traveling with me. Um, and, and it, you know, it's, it's just really basic, really. Um, a couple of guests are like, is that it? And like, come on, be more professional. I'm like, nah, man, like the, the best way of doing it for me is go to their house, sit on their couch. Um, it provides good audio quality because, it, you know, you got the cushioning. Um, it's better than a, the kitchen table I've worked out. Um, and people are relaxed and chilled and it's just hold your own mic. Sorry. Don't, you know, if your arm gets sore, well, you'll be right. You're an elite athlete. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, just, just really, um, chilled basically. And, and generally speaking, most of them have been at their house. Um, sometimes I'll do it at the club or, um, or elsewhere. Um, especially if they've got like young kids, um, we'll go to a different venue cause he obviously needed to be quite quiet, but generally speaking, I, do, I go to people's houses. Yeah. We've spoken to people in the past and they've talked about, you know, the, the format of podcasting. You don't need to bring along the big cameras. You don't need to have all of this kit. So just by virtue of the fact that you've got, you know, not too much in front of you, 
it can really sort of help people let down their walls a bit further and it's just it is much more of an intimate conversation between you and them and you know us the audience they're not so much aware of it at that time yeah spot on and you know I've done a lot of tv as well this this is different and I think for the length of it as well you, you people sort of really let their guard down over um, a length of time when it's just you and, and the microphones. I still love TV as a medium, but I quite enjoy the intimacy of this and, and the fact that when people listen to it, that it is an intimate experience as well. It's in their car or in their earpieces when they're going for a run in their headphones. Um, you know, it feels quite intimate and, and that's the nature of it. And another thing was, you know, when COVID hit, a lot of people obviously went to to this approach of doing um, interviews over Zoom and I decided I, I was just going to shelve it um, because I, I feel like 80% of my approach is nonverbal um, and so it just doesn't work for me um, and the, the topics that I'm covering over Zoom, over technology. Um and I think it's been great that it works for so many others, but I just sort of felt for me, I'd rather just stick with with what's really working for me and what I really love doing. Um, and if that means, you know, just not releasing any for a year, then so be it. Um, and then thankfully with the way that the, you know, pandemic has been in Australia, I've been able to record a few episodes over the last couple of months and, um, you know, bank a few face-to-face. Yeah, look, I mean, the 10, 15 minutes we spent bumbling at the start of this call before we got on is a, a test uh, not doing a Zoom call. I'm also hoping the, uh, the, the audio is all right from my end. We'll find out, I guess. But uh, also just paying respect to the subject matter is, um, you know, that, that, I think that's a great idea. Season two, just any plans in terms of different format? We've listened to the first episode. It seems to have shifted slightly in tone i don't know if that was just related to the guest or are there any any learnings or changes you've got with season two no it's pre- it's pretty similar yeah the, the shift in the tone is more just that nick nat is the guest for the first one is um just he's such a storyteller you know he he that's what he's like in real life he tells stories with humor um it can be the worst moment in his life and he'll still crack gags that's kind of what he is like and he's super intelligent and articulate as well and his life story is just so fascinating um and you know it's just a picture of resilience so it was nice I was really excited um when we recorded that and he afterwards was like that was that was actually really good fun um and it was really nice because when you're interviewing a mate I find that it can either work out really well or it can get really awkward um, and so I was a bit nervous going into that one of, I didn't know if it was just going to get awkward. Um, but it wasn't, it was exactly how it is when Nick and I just hang out as mates and exchange stories. And I was really pumped that, um, you know, cause particularly footy players, a lot of, um, you know, the stuff that they do is very guarded and they're always worried about, um, saying the wrong thing or whatever. And so I, I was really excited that the, that the Nick captured on the podcast is the same Nick that I know. And and I was like, yes, other people are going to get to know him the way that I know him. And that's awesome. When you're interviewing someone that you do have that relationship with, how do you kind of broach that when you are talking to someone that you kind of mates with or, or otherwise to just go that extra little sort of push and get that little bit more of the story out of them or that little bit more, you know, emotion sort of, you know, like taking the extra pass in, in basketball, if you want to use that analogy to get the shot. For me, it's once again, it comes back to trust. And I guess I, I just know, I know 
what they're going to be comfortable with and what they're not. And I tend to err on the side of caution. And once again, if, it, if they do end up saying something that they change their mind about, I wouldn't mind taking it out anyway. I mean, it's, you know, it's disappointing, but I, I would rather protect the person um, than, than have the exact, you know, podcast that I wanted. But um, it's generally speaking, I, I, yeah, I've got a fair understanding. Like, like I say, the Nathan Lyon one, for example, um, I know, I feel like I've got a fairly good understanding of what he would be comfortable with being out there. And once again, I said to him, you know, to start with, is there anything you don't want to cover? Um, and he was like, no, I trust you. Just go for it. Um, and it's always really nice when, um, when you get feedback from their families afterwards. Um, so I got, uh, feedback from Nathan Lyon's brother after that one. And he was like, that's, that's the most him I've ever heard him in the media. He's like, you know, you, you got him. That's my brother. And, um, and it was the same Nick, Nick's manager. He's also a great mate of mine. She sort of messaged me today and said, that's, that's him. That's, you know, he, he's, he's never that like, um, himself whilst on the record. So I guess that for me is the biggest compliment you can give me that it's a true reflection of what the person actually is to those who know them best. Yeah, it was very moving when he started talking about his daughters, wasn't it? Yeah, Nathan Lyon. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was funny that moment because that one we actually recorded in my hotel room in Sydney because it was during the Women's Cricket World Cup and I was staying out at Homebush and, and I didn't have a car and bless him. He was like, oh, I'll come out there. And I was like, oh, that's <laughs> nice. Just drive an hour out to do a podcast for me, you know, for nothing, no gain for him. And... Um, and we, we started doing the podcast and, and gets to that point and he, and he starts crying. And I, for a moment, I thought he was kind of joking. I, I was so taken aback by it because he's not an emotional guy. And then I kind of laugh a little bit and then I'm like. Yeah, nice, Gary. <laughs> and he's like, yep, yeah, yeah. He's like, yep, yeah, you, you got me, you got me, oh, come on. You know, and it was, yeah, it was, it was really lovely that he allowed himself to, you know, let his guard down that much. Um it, it was cool. It was a cool moment. Do you take any precautions when you know you're going to run into certain subject matter? So maybe you're talking to Glenn Maxwell. There's going to be a bit of talk about depression. Uh, do you do any special research or precautions? I know you put the um, list numbers, help numbers, and, uh, and and support lines if this subject matter and trigger warnings. But is there anything else that you do to actually prepare? So my mum was a psychologist, so I've always had a real understanding and interest in mental health and a lot of the stuff that I've done over the years, I've felt like some of the stories that I've done have played an important role in changing the way that we um, report on it, the way that we handle it and the importance of having honest discussion. And if sports stars talk honestly and openly, particularly male ones about their feelings and emotions and setbacks, um, it really does help pave the way to change the way society handles it as well. Um, Sport is a great, avenue for social change and so I think it's really important and to give people a safe space and to allow the silence to happen and um and not be uncomfortable with with the silence I think is really important um because you know so often people will get emotional and people will change the subject because it gets awkward and and I don't I don't feel uncomfortable in those moments I think because I was raised by by my mom um 
And then last year, I actually, I did a, a course in mental health and counselling as well after the first season, just because I was stuck in the pandemic and wanted to use my brain. And um, yeah, just thought it would be a good opportunity to sort of get some formal training in, in um, you know, in that space, given I do so many interviews in it, but also just had an interest in it. So um, yeah, I think that's definitely uh, help solidify what I sort of already knew as well, but it's definitely, it's very important um, to, to be sensitive, to be aware. And I do um, other things like welfare checks. Um, I always check when I know it's a particularly sensitive one. I always check in, see how the person's feeling before the episode's about to drop. Um, Peter Siddle, for example, was really nervous about it before it dropped. And then when it did, um, all he got was support, no, no criticism. And that was a big relief for him. And he wanted to share his story to hopefully help other people. And he did that. So that's the other thing that's really important to me is that people don't regret sharing it. Um, I, I would feel awful if, if somebody shared their, you know, most intimate stories and then, and then regretted doing so that that would sit uncomfortably with me. So yeah, doing welfare checks, checking in, um, SIDS, for example, got picked up by a lot of news, um, you know, newspapers and online and everything. And so I just did a couple of checks with that as well going, Hey, you okay? You know, I know it's been picked up and he's like, you know, the fact that it's been picked up means it's going to reach a bigger audience. So he, that's a positive for me. So I think doing things like that, these important that's really cool. It's it's you sort of spoke to this before and and saying you know the way that we either just you know build sports people up and absolutely make gods and heroes of them or we just vilify them, uh, depending on you know what way the coin is dropped. And you're breaking through and you know this is happening in a lot of other areas as well. But breaking through that stereotype of sports players just being this like you know one dimensional thing that just runs ball up or does you know kicks goal or does whatever they do, um, and just getting a little bit more behind them. Do you, are you kind of quite conscious about representation in your guests as well and saying, you know, I want to have a good mix, obviously, of, of male and female, but just all walks of life? Yeah, for sure. And um, and different ages and um, different, yeah, backgrounds. And I think for me, one of the really strong ones is um, in the Nick Nat Nui one, the Adam Trelaw one, uh, the Sabrina Duffy one from, from season one, is the message it gives to kids who didn't have – um, an affluent upbringing that you can make it um, because that's really important for me and you talk about the mental health side of things is I don't just focus on what they've been through I focus on how they got through it um, and what they learned because I think people listening it then becomes a bit of a tool for them and so if can you imagine if as a you know a 14 year old kid you know these kids in those situations who you know, uh, in a lower socioeconomical environment, feel like they're up against it, have, you know, in the case of Sabrina Duffy, um, you know, she was, she was, um, had foster parents or, you know, in Nick's case, moving from home to home, um, in Adam's case, a, a, a father who wasn't present. If you're a kid having those same situations now, just what that would mean to you to hear somebody go, hey, I was you. And I got through it and this is how I got through it. I see you, I hear you and, you know, and I'm, I'm here for you in this format of you can do it too. I just think that's incredibly inspiring. I mean, we spoke at the start about women in sport and if I saw more female broadcasters and more women's sport on TV, maybe I would have dreamed even bigger, you know. Um, 
So I, I think having people share those stories is is huge for other people going through their own stuff, particularly young, impressionable people. And is there any advice you'd want to give to those young and impressionable people looking to start a podcast or looking to start out in media? Is there any specific advice you'd want to pass on to them? Have a pun. No. <laughs> 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 uh, I would, I would say, um, like I say, do as much work experience as possible. Treat university, treat studies like it's a job, like it's, a, you know, we, we did that podcast as though we were broadcasting it to the world. Um, like I'm sure if we listen back to it now, it would suck, but we put everything into it. Um, and I think that's, that's the main thing to really take um, – take honour in your work and and treat it like it, it's real life and it's real broadcasting. And I think now with podcasting and things like that, like this and social media, there's such an opportunity for, for people to get their voice and face out there on different platforms. Um, so, yeah, there's plenty of opportunity now. You just sort of need to have the drive and, um, and the will and the want to, to do so. The other thing I would say, though, is, you know, it takes time <laughs> – it's, you know, I'm, I'm only getting these interviews with these people because I met Nick Nat Nui as a 16, 17-year-old draft, like, you know, potential draft pick um, as number one, um, you know, ends up going as number two. But he was sort of, there was a lot of stories. There was a lot of focus about him. So that's, you know, what he's, he's 30 now. So that's 13, 14 years of, of a relationship that developed into a friendship um, over the years it takes time to build those sort of relationships. So you're not going to get those interviews straight up. Well, you might get the occasional Shane Woden at a lift, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just being patient and, and just knowing that it does take time. You mentioned before as well, like the, the way that they kind of feel comfortable because you are a one-person show and you're doing all the editing and, and everything yourself. Did you, you had these skills obviously from university and everything? Yeah, I edited a lot of my stories um, for TV. So editing audio is a, is a piece of piece <laughs> for me compared to having to match up um, video and all that sort of stuff and visuals. So I think, yeah, just skills that I uh, got over the years in, in my sort of TV um, career um, has helped in that way. And I just, I asked advice of people and, um, you know, and, and basically just started messing around with it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how I've sort of done that side of things. I think that the equipment was what scared me the most. And so I got advice from people. I didn't think I'd be able to record it myself and, and all those things, but actually it, it sort of looks a lot scarier than what it is for, you know, the basic equipment that I've gone for. And, it, I think it sounds good enough, you know, um, you sort of, you cop that sometimes there's going to be a bird in the background or, yeah. you know, a person might use the mic and swing it around a little bit like that, but that's, you know, that's just going to happen. That's, that's human nature. So. And what about, what about the sort of tone of the show? Did you like the, the song that you have there, you've mentioned that before, uh, before on the podcast, uh, love me like you want to be loved. Did you, were you aware of that song before or was that sort of something that kind of came to you and you thought, geez, this, you know, this really matches up with the kind of message that I'm trying to push here? Uh, basically, I just called in all the favours from all the friends. So <laughs> <laughs> the photograph is a, is a mate of mine who I've worked with for many years. I was like, um, how do you feel about taking a photo of me at the MCG while you're here for the tennis? Uh, the, you know, the first couple of guests were friends of mine that I'm like, hey, how about? 
telling me your deepest, darkest stories uh, to get me going on my new podcast. <laughs> um, the song is the same. Hey, Woody, you know how you want to get more people to listen to your music? How about being on my podcast? Um, and I basically went and listened to a bunch of his tracks and went, oh, my God, this one's perfect. You know, it's it's almost like it's written for the podcast. Yeah. Um, and he, luckily enough, is a, um, is a massive sports nut as well and super supportive of me as a mate. Um, and so he just jumped on board. He was like, yeah, I'm totally happy for you to use my music. He sort of is a, you know, win-win situation. More people potentially heard his track um, and hopefully then, you know, go to Spotify and all these things and, and look up more of his music. But, um yeah, he's he's just a talented mate of mine, really, that I met through the industry. So, um, yeah, basically calling in all the favors. <laughs> <laughs> and has the audience response been generally pretty good? Have you have you found it's been building and building? Yeah, it's been amazing. It's really nice reading the the feedback from people, and um, yeah, they seem to really enjoy the insight that they're getting, and um, and you know, there's been some really profound moments as well that that stay with me um you know for example the peter siddle one where he's talking about basically why he gave up drinking eight years ago and he's never really spoken about why he did so and i didn't even know the full extent of the story i sort of said to him hey would you be willing to do an episode on your headspace at the time and then we sat down and we you know we did the interview and some of the things that came out i was like as, as Will Anderson said, yeah. he goes... It's fairly full on. Yeah, yeah, he goes... Will Anderson said once, dude, you got away with it. Why are you telling everyone now? Like, <laughs> no one knew. Um, <laughs> so we had a good laugh about that. But, yeah, I mean, some of the stories that he shares and, and, and the reason why I bring this up is because I, I got a, a quite a long direct message from someone to the Ordinarily um, Speaking account on Instagram and he basically said... Um, you know, I, I think I've got a drinking problem and I went to a family function and and all my family was pressuring me into drinking and they couldn't understand why why I wanted to give it up. And he said, I, I then listened to this podcast and it's the podcast I needed to hear right now. Um, it's keeping me on my path and I can send it to my family and say, this is why I'm I'm giving it up. You say a fun dude, it's not It's not the reality. Um, so I think if it can become like a, almost a mental health tool for people to go, hey, this is what I'm going through. I can't articulate it myself, but this is a version of it. Um, I think that's pretty profound and, and uh, pretty cool. Yeah, just sort of start that conversation. Oh, that's incredibly powerful. Congratulations on, you know, your work being that impactful. Thank you. I, I think it also helps it. It also helps it because I, I got sacked from my own job. So a lot of these sports people are also like, yeah, you know what it's like to be delisted. You know what it's like. So it's kind of, it adds to the relatability as well a little bit. <laughs> Made you more relatable. Love yeah. it. Oh, you got you to gotta make lemonade, right? Exactly, exactly. We'd love to know about some of the podcasts you're listening to and anything you'd like to recommend. I, obviously, the two guys that I mentioned earlier, Howie Games um, and Willosophy, um, really enjoy those um, sort of different styles to me, but they, those same sort of, you know, conversations, I guess. Um, and particularly with, with Howie's, with the, the sporting sort of nature of it. Um, and I sort of only, I came across it by being a guest on it, but shameless, um, the girls are great. Um, so I've really enjoyed 
what they bring and um, and they've also released a book as well and reading that over the summer uh, these are two young girls who you know almost 10 years younger than me and it, it kind of inspires me that they have stronger more powerful voices than than I have and it makes it makes me feel like we must be going in the right direction if there's younger girls who feel empowered to say what they really think and um you know and and don't just be be quite good girls you know that's kind of how we were raised be be quiet be good be nice um not be strong be vocal be opinionated um and i i think it's great yeah we've had them on this show they're unreal yeah they, they're just really lovely yeah a cultural phenomenon and yeah really lovely girls really yeah. strong and um yeah highly recommend them which they don't clearly they don't need my recommendation by the way they're the, they're one of the most like successful podcasts the country's ever seen and me saying their name is not going to help them at all but <laughs> it's uh you know I enjoy listening to them all right well that's been unreal I mean thanks very much for taking time with us today Nerly oh no thank you so much for your support I really appreciate it thanks so much Nerly for your great insights and giving us an understanding of what's going on off the field with some of Australia's favorite Australian sports stars. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Behind the Podcast. 